Good to be back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Good to go on vacation. Always good to be back. Appreciate Stuart doing a wonderful job filling the pulpit last week. Brought us a great message on Psalm 119. Today we're going to be in Psalm 96. This is our fifth week for me, our sixth week total uh, to be, seventh week total to be in uh, Psalms. We've got two more Psalms we're going to look at, and then that will conclude this series on Psalms. If you're a note taker, you can go to fpcdan.com slash notes or take a picture or hold your camera up. You don't actually take a picture. Hold your camera up to that QR code and it will take you to the link, that same link there. You can email those notes to yourself when you're done. So, question is, moment of truth, moment of truth. We've done a Psalms challenge all week long, all month long, excuse me, all month long. Today we had a couple of psalms left, so I'm just curious who all actually read through all 150 psalms this month, or by the end of today you will have done that. Just wondering, going back and forth, should I make you stand up, should I make you hold your hand up? But then if like two people stood up, then I would just cry, so I decided I'd just mess with you a little bit. I know many of you have, because... I've talked to many of you, and you've, you've appreciated the time in the Psalms because they're phenomenal. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's, it's crazy how God-honoring and human the Psalms are at the same time. They're very human. They're very vulnerable. They're very open. They're very, they're very I don't like this guy, God. Please, please smite him. But if you don't, I'm still going to praise you. They're amazing. And I've, I've enjoyed the time in them this, this month as well. And I've told you before, and I keep saying this to hold myself accountable, God has put it on my heart to go through the Psalms every month for the next year. So I've got 11 more months to do this every month. So uh, we may have a Psalms 2.0 at some point in the next few months. We know, I don't know. We'll see. That's where we've been. We've been in the Psalms, and we're in Psalm 96 today. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to getting into this today. Um, you know, this, this, this image that I've shown a hundred times, by the way, I think I've only said this once. That, that comes from the Bible Project. I don't want you to think that I'm good enough to do something like that. The Bible Project is where that image is courtesy of. It shows a visual of the breakdown of the five books of the Psalms. The Hebrew word for Psalms, the, the, the title of this book in the Hebrew is Tehillim, which is book of praises. That's not what Psalms means, but that's kind of what, the way we say it now. It's not literally what it means, but in English it kind of does. Because, you know, we take other languages and make it our own. That's what we do. Uh, so Psalms, the book of praises, how to praise God. Today we're in Psalm 96. So what is the background of this psalm? Not all psalms have a background, but some of them do. Uh, and most of the ones we've looked at do. And this, one, this one has a little bit of a background. We know for sure one time when this psalm was used. Scripture gives us that. This psalm along with excuse me, two other psalms, excuse me, were used on a very important day in Israel's history. So, quick history lesson. Always wait to see if uh, always wait to see if I hear that. That's what you when you do that in class. That's what you get over there. When I used to be a teacher, oh. but I don't usually get that here. Some, but sometimes I can hear the students sometimes say it. So about 1500 BC. Okay, about 1500 BC, 3500 years ago. Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, right? Basic Sunday school Bible lesson. If you've been in Sunday school, you have heard this lesson. He leads them out of Egypt and crosses the Red Sea. 
right? And then the Lord leads them by a storm cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night is the presence of God until he leads them to camp at Mount Sinai. And there on top of Mount Sinai, God writes on the two tablets the Ten Commandments and gives Moses the law, the instruction for how Israel is to live as God's nation. He also gives him instructions on on what Moses is to do, what he's supposed to make, and how he's supposed to do it, the details of the thing he's supposed to make to put these two tablets inside of this thing to, to protect it and to be able to transport it. These two tablets are placed in something that can be stored and transported in. What is that thing called? Yeah, girl. Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant. What is an ark? You think of Noah's Ark. An ark is something, is something that protects and transports something. So God gives them the covenant on the stones, and then he says, Moses, this is how you are to store, protect, and be able to transport this covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant, this is just a replica, obviously, of it. None of us have ever seen it. This made of Akasha wood, completely covered in gold, 3.9 feet long, 2.3 feet high and wide. On the top of it was a king's crown that was solid gold. You can't really probably see it on the picture, but there's gold rings right there on the side with those long poles of wood stuck through those gold rings that are covered in gold as well so they could pick up the ark and transport it. The lid on top of the ark is what we call the mercy seat. You've heard me say that before. The mercy seat. This is where the blood was sprinkled on the day of atonement was on the mercy seat. The, the, the great day that the sins of Israel were forgiven for the previous year. And there's two cherubim facing each other looking down at the mercy seat with their wings outstretched over the mercy seat. That's what's on the top of the ark. The cherubim have four faces, Scripture describes. describes. One of a lion, one of an eagle, one of an ox, and one of a man. These are fierce-looking creatures. These are the same creatures that God places at the tree of life after Adam and Eve have sinned to protect us from being able to live forever in a broken state. Thank you, God. That you didn't leave us, that you haven't left us in a broken state. And then towards the end of Exodus, it says this. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the testimony that I will give you in the ark. I will meet you there, God talking to Moses. I will meet you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. So God's Spiritual presence literally manifests itself under the cherubim, over the mercy seat, in order to be able to communicate with Moses during the time that they are in the wilderness. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Now, remember that these people were nomadic. They moved around. Okay, so where they stayed wasn't always the same place. This is just a kind of an, a rendition of what that kind of looked like. The, the tent around the outside, okay, is, is like the, the temple court. And then the, the, the building, the tent on the inside is what's called a tabernacle, right? It's a, it's a portable sanctuary. It's a portable church. Inside of that was the Holy of Holies. And inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Therefore, was the presence of God. And at nighttime, this is just a, an example, the pillar of fire would fall on that cloud of smoke by day. And so 
for 40 years, the Israelites, after they leave Egypt for 40 years, they're wandering around, and then they finally get to go into the promised land. They have to cross a river again to do that. What leads them as they cross that river into the promised land? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant leads into uh, the Jordan River, and it parts, and all of Israel, except for the clan and the half that stayed behind, crosses in and commences to whip and tail. Years later, during all this warring, battles and fighting, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant after winning a battle. And to say that calamity falls upon them as a nation is an understatement. Deadly diseases fall on them, people just dying left and right because they possess what they don't own. It's not theirs to possess, but they have it anyway. And then later, David recaptures the ark. And that's a great day in Israel's history. That's a big day to get this back. But he puts it at the house of Obed-Edom for, quite, for, a little, for a little while. Not in Jerusalem yet. And then later, it finally moves. They finally move the ark of the covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. To the, to the city of David. To, to God's city. And, and there's a big celebration the day that the ark makes its way to Jerusalem. And it's placed in a tent, probably a mosaic-like, tabernacle-like tent. David, you know this, desires to build a temple. But God says, nope, you're not going to do that. And we hashed all that out a couple of weeks ago. He wants a temple that's worthy of God and worthy of housing the ark of the covenant. He literally says that. I'm in a palace. God's ark is in a tent. This is not right. God's like, I'm cool. You don't have to do that. But then David says, well, we want to. So then he lets him. He doesn't get this privilege of building the temple, though. He gets the privilege of preparing the materials for it to be built. But his son Solomon comes along after him, the next king, and he builds the temple. A literal, magnificent temple to God. And inside of that is the Holy of Holies. And inside of that is the Ark of of the covenant. Solomon oversees the building of the temple around 960 BC. These materials were gathered by his father David, and God's ark finally rests in the Holy of Holies, in what has become known as the Temple of Solomon, is what we call it now. It's the first temple of Jerusalem. It was destroyed and then rebuilt and then destroyed again. But our focus today is not on this. Our focus today is on this. When the ark was triumphantly, victoriously moved to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had finally become the capital city of Israel. It, had finally be, it was finally being fulfilled, what it was supposed to be, the city of peace, the city of God, the city of David, all these names that it has. It's the most joyous occasion is documented for us in the Chronicles. You know, the book that you skip over because it says all the same things that First and Second Samuel says. Right? In the Hebrew Bible, that, 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 those books, it's one book, but those two books that we split into two, because it had to be on two separate scrolls, is at the end. Because it's like a summary of everything. In our, in our Bible, we place it side by side, and it's like, I just read this in Samuel and Kings, like, next, and we kind of skip it. But there's stuff in there that's not in the other books, some other details, and this is one of those details. First Chronicles 15, 27 through 29, Now David was dressed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark. And this artist has made a, a rendition of this. David also wore a linen ephod. 
So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouts, the sounds of the ram, ram's horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and the playing of harps and lyres. How people can think that instruments don't belong in church is beyond me. Anyway, not chasing that. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David. This is describing this, what this picture, that picture, excuse me, is showing. And then in chapter 16 in, in 1 Chronicles. It documents the three psalms sung to commemorate this moment. One of the most profound and most joyous occasions of Israel's history. And of course, one of those psalms listed in 1 Chronicles 16 is Psalm 96. So with all that as the background, picture that Israel's celebrating as they bring the Ark of the Covenant to rest in Jerusalem. That's the background of one of the times this psalm was used. And most people think that it was used on most celebratory occasions. That's Psalm 96. Let's read it. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to Yahweh. Praise His name. Proclaim His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His wonderful works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that, it, that fills it resound. Verse 12, let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Lord God, please speak to me and through me today as we dig in to your word and what you have for us today in this beautiful psalm. God, may it change my heart. May it change our hearts. May it bring someone to salvation, God. May it re restore the joy of salvation and may it give us a clear picture of the duty that you've given us as we move forward today. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's dig into this verse by verse. Verse 1 and 2, sing a new song to the Lord, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to Yahweh, praise his name. The psalm starts out the way most things, when communicating with God, start out. It starts upward, right? The psalmist is looking to God. It's reminding it's, it's himself or herself of the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. It's Godward. That's how we start. All things. That's how we start. Eyes on God. First thing. And it says, sing a new song. And that's implying that to sing a new song means there's new mercies. New mercies have been received. What is it in this case when it's used in 1 Chronicles? That they're finally getting to take the ark. They're victorious. Like we actually are fulfilling the things God has put us on this earth to fulfill. Or maybe not a new song, but it means something good has happened. So maybe you're singing an old song like it's new. Ever done that? Sometimes, sometimes an old song that you've sung a million times... 
Something's going on in your life. Something has happened. God's come through. So, something has changed. Somebody got saved. Something. You're filled up because you're, you're focused on him. And that song seems like it's brand new, even though you've sung it a million times. That's what this is saying here. Or maybe it is a literal new song. Either way, sing to the Lord. We've talked about that numerous times, how important it is for us to come together and sing to God like we mean it. Praise him. Sing to him. Praise the everlasting Yahweh. And then quickly gets down to business. Verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all peoples. It moves outward. It moves manward, right? Because we can't just sit around and say, God, you're great. God, you're great. God, you're amazing. God, you're amazing. That's not what our life is supposed to be. We do that so that we can move manward, so that we can move outward. We don't just stay here and praise God all the time, as awesome as that is. You know, that's, church camp is like that. It's like, man, I wish life was like this. Life's not like that. We don't get to just stay here. It'd be cool if we did, I think. Knowing us, we'd get bored in like three hours, if that long, right? So it says to move outward. The people were told to do what? Announce his salvation and his deeds throughout the world. Why? To bring him glory. To declare his glory. Glory. How does someone get glory? Because others talk about him. That's what glory is. For someone to get glory, it means someone has to be talking about them. Now, I usually don't talk about people when they're not here, but this is too good, so I'm not skipping it, even though Wes is not here today. So, for me, as a sports fan, make sure y'all tell Wes to watch the playbook, playback. My favorite athlete of all time, by far, without a question, is Michael Jordan. I think he's the greatest athlete of all time. He's my favorite. Whether you agree with that or not, I don't really care. He's my favorite, and that's all there is to it. In my opinion, he's the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Right? That, that term gets thrown around all the time now. Every week there's a new goat. It's like that's not how the language works. Greatest of all time. It's like, anyway. Why does Michael Jordan get so much glory? Because of what he did. Because of what he did. And because of what he did, we talk about it. That's how he gets glory. I talk about it. Still. Wes and I have gone round and round about this more than once he says that LeBron he says LeBron's the goat I say Jordan is the goat he justifies his position with this and that and to be honest I don't remember what he said because it wasn't worth remembering <laughs> and I say how can your guy be the greatest your guy has never even won defensive player of the year one time ever not one time he's never led this the, the league in steals one time. Not one time. He's, he's only led the, the league in scoring one time. He's never been defensive player of the year. He's never led the league in steals. And he's only led the league in scoring one time in his long career. And I'm not saying LeBron's trash. Just saying he is compared to Jordan. Anyway. <laughs> he's led the league in scoring one time. My guy, Jordan, did all of that in the same Season. This is literally a conversation Wes and I have had. 
In Jordan's 87-88 season, listen to this. He was MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, All-Star Game MVP, NBA Slam Dunk Contest champion. The league's scoring leader with an average of 35 points per game. He had 131 blocks, the most by a guard ever, which would have put him in fourth place last season in any position with that amount of blocks in the NBA. He had 3.2 steals per game. For shooting guards, the position that Jordan played, he was the all-time leader in points per game. He also leads this for all positions. He's the all-time leading points per game person in any position. All-time leader in steals, all-time leader in blocks, fourth in assists, all those are by per game. For all positions, not just his position, but for all positions, he's 14th in minutes per game, fourth in steals per game, second in shots made per game, with, with just under a 50 field goal shooting percentage. And he leads LeBron by 10 percentage points in free throws, which is a huge pet peeve of mine. How can you be a professional athlete and shoot 73% from the free throw line and people still call you the greatest of all time? It is ridiculous. <laughs> now, sorry. Thank you. Now I'm preaching, right? My generation and those after me get it. Now, we're not here to debate the best basketball players of all time. And frankly, there's not even really a debate to have. My, but my point is, is that Jordan, Jordan's glory is as big now as it ever was. Why? Because we declare it. His fans, like me, declare his greatness. We talk about his greatness. We announce his greatness as we get into this psalm. We ascribe to him greatness because of what he has done. In his sport, he deserves that acclamation. Nobody cares about that forest. In, <laughs> in, in the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Bible, so it's the first oldest translation we have. Okay, it's not the original language, but it's the first oldest translation that we have, the second oldest language of the Bible. This word here for declare is anangelo. Anangelo. This is, this is the word that we eventually get the word evangelism from. The word declare in the Greek is evangelo. And angelo, which we get evangelize. The purpose of this psalm is to evangelize, to tell, and to declare God's works and God's greatness. God is mighty. He is great. He is wonderful. And it should be shouted from the rooftops everywhere by his people. That's what this psalm is telling us. So if you're wondering where we're heading today, that's where we're heading. Good old-fashioned evangel evangelism. Right? Proclaim what? The greatness of God. Proclaim what he has done. Why are we ashamed? And maybe you're not. But why are we ashamed to declare God's greatness? Why in those moments when we could say this is what God has done, do we shrink from that? But then I'm so willing to talk about Michael Jordan and how awesome he was. We should declare, announce, and shout out the greatness of God. That's evangelism. Verse 4, for the Lord is great and highly praised, for he is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. God is great and deserves our proclamation. Why is he feared by the little g gods? Notice there, there's little g gods. That's how we do it in English. The little g gods, why is he feared by them? Because the little g gods are just idols, here it says. Just idols. 
Now, here's a cool wordplay for you in Hebrew for the nerds today. This is as good as I've got for you today. Cool wordplay. The word here for idols used in the Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim. Or if you said Elohim. Sounds like another word. Does anybody, can anybody think of another Hebrew word that that sounds like? I know I'm getting, I'm getting a little academic on you. What's, what's the title for, the, for, for God in, in the Hebrew? What's the, the first title that they give God? Not his name, Yahweh, the first title they give him. In the beginning, God, that word there for God is Elohim. Elohim. Look at it side by side. Elohim or Elohim. The word for God, the title for God, like we say God, right? The title for him in, in, in the Hebrew is Elohim. The word for idols is Elohim. Almost the same. Very close. Right? 20 times this word is used in the Old Testament. There's different names. This is one of the names. 20 times it's used. 10 times, 20 times the word for idols, Elohim, is used. 10 times that word is used in just Isaiah alone. It's, it's Isaiah's favorite word for idols. It's no accident in the language for this to be the case, for these words to be so similar. And, and, and you would hear it in, when it's spoken. And you would notice it when it's written. You would see that, that these words are so similar. It almost sounds like God. It almost looks like God. But in the end, it's just nothing. It's nothing. It's worthless. That's what idols are. They're nothing. And they're worthless. It's the word translated in Job 13.4 for worthless. It says worthless physicians. Same word, Elohim. In Jeremiah 14.14, 14, worthless divination. Same word. The word carries a strong meaning of worthlessness, of nothingness. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 8 when talking about uh, food offered to idols. Then we know that, quote, an idol is nothing in the world. Probably pulling from this here. And that there's no God but one. Elohim, idols. Things that are nothing, things that are weak, things that are worthless. Think about this. This is what this means. God is sovereign over all forces, real or imagined. Because idols are just imaginary things of force. They don't really have power. They don't really have anything. They're worthless. They're nothing. God's sovereign even over our imaginary forces. But the Lord, I hope you never read this psalm again. He says all that, little g-gods, nothing, idols, nothing. But the Lord, I told you before, that word there, it carries a lot of meaning. Dusty, don't say anything inappropriate over there like you have before. But when you hear, see that word, something has changed. But the Lord made the heavens. But the Lord made the heavens. That's why so many of our praise songs talk about the majesty of creation. It's majestic. Have you seen those pictures that NASA just put out? A couple weeks ago, right? These new things that we found out there because there's a new telescope and all that. It's like, yeah, creation is amazing, right? Little g gods are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Little g idols have no power, but the Lord made the heavens. Little g powers are worthless, but the Lord made the heavens. That's the correct perspective for us to have. It's always the right and good place to start, the correct perspective, the right axiom that your world should spin around. Yahweh God is creator God. 
Why do you think they fight that so hard in the world? Why do you think they're constantly trying to disprove that God is creator God? And the harder they try, the more they are convinced and learn that it is true. Yahweh spoke the word and Jesus is the word. And the word made everything. These little g gods are worthless and weak. But God made everything by his word. And his creation displays his greatness and his beauty. But the Lord made the heavens. That's a big statement. And it goes on there to kind of get into that just a little bit. It says, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Splendor. The Hebrew word here is hod. Splendor, majesty, vigor. Royal splendor radiates from him. Is the way the, the message says this verse. Majesty. The word here is haldar. That's the word used in Proverbs 20, 29 when it says the glory of young men is their strength and the splendor, the hadar, of old men is gray hair. It shows they've lived a little bit. Proverbs 31, 25, the one talking about Proverbs 31 woman, right? Strength and honor, strength and hadar are her clothing. Same word. It's a, it's a word talking about the, just the majesty of something. The word for strength is o's. Same word used in Isaiah 12 too. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid for Yah, short for Yahweh, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my, my salvation. By his mighty arm, the Old Testament says a lot. O's is the word there for mighty arm. Same word. Beauty, the word in the Hebrew is the tifereth, used four times in Psalms. The HCSB has those four times that it's used in Psalms as honor, splendor, magnificent, and here, as we just read it, as beauty. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is a very literal translation, very good translation, has it three times as glory and one time as beauty. Now, all four of these words, these four words we just looked at, are used in two different pairings. They're used together. Without participles in between them. Now, I'm not going to go literature teacher on you, but what does that mean? And, it, those little bitty words that we put in between stuff, right? The Hebrew didn't have that. That doesn't exist in the Hebrew. So, th so these, these two words are put together side by side with nothing separating them. That was how you, that was how you made a point, right? It's splendor majesty, in other words. It's hod hadar. These words are together. What just happened? This thing. There we go. My cord was coming over my arm. It was driving me crazy. I'm sorry. The whole reason why I put it under my shirt so that doesn't happen. Good grief. Gosh, I'm mighty. Oh, anyway. <laughs> it's splendor majesty or hod hadar. Right? The two words are together. Doubled up. Doubled up nouns give a pronounced and punctuated statement and meaning. Right? Or it's o's, tifereth, strength and beauty. Mighty glory. Strong splendor, mighty magnificence. There's no and in between it. And, and the psalmist is making an undismissible statement by saying this. He's making sure that you don't miss this, God's splendor. In other words, God is the grander being that is imposing in form and in appearance. That's what he's saying here real quickly. God is the grander being that is imposing in form and appearance. In other words, he is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. We'll talk more on this in two weeks with our last psalm. It's the subject of the entire psalm. 
And it says he displayed it in his sanctuary, his tabernacle, right? Then eventually in his temple. He displays this glory throughout this. He displayed it in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God built by Solomon. And, believer, he displays it in you as a living stone in his sanctuary. That's what God says about you and me. Now, we are his living temple, or living stones, and we are to display his glory. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. To ascribe something means to acknowledge they have the attribute. To ascribe something to someone means to acknowledge that they have a particular attribute. So ascribe to the Lord what? Glory and strength. He has this. Nature has proven this. His creation proves this. So acknowledge it, is what the psalmist is saying here. This word here, families, is mishpachanah. This word, most of the time in the English, especially in the King James, is usually translated as clans. I like that word. It's a very descriptive word, right? Families, clans. In other words, every group of every type of people everywhere should ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Give him, acknowledge his glory and his strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Acknowledge that God is great. God is mighty. He is everlasting. God, so talk about his greatness, church. Talk about his greatness. Talk about his greatness. Let it be on our lips. Talk about his greatness. All right, verse 9. There's a step on some toes. Fair warning. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This word here, worship, shaha, literally means to bow down. We say worship. The Hebrew word said bow down or to prostrate oneself, which is not what some of you just heard. It's not what I said. Prostrate, to fall down face first, to be on your face. If God physically showed up right here, right now, that's exactly what would happen. Every single one of us would fall down on our face and tremble in fear in the presence of mighty God. That's what the Hebrew says worship is. Not the half-hearted junk that I and you bring to him most of the time on Sunday mornings. Sometimes this word here, shaha, translated into the English is translated reverence. That's a word some of us like. I like that word. I'm a good little Baptist. I've grown up in a Baptist church my whole life. I like the reverence of the Lord. I don't want chaos and discord in the church i don't think it's the place for it <laughs> but understand the word reverent actually literally means to bow down on your face in front of the lord some of us fancy ourselves pretty reverent before the lord because we keep control of our emotions that's what we think it means sometimes but when was the last time you were prostrate before the lord when was the last time you fell on your face because of his glory, because of his mighty power, because of what he has done and is doing and will do? I've said this all throughout this series, and I'll say it again. Notice how there's almost always a physical response when worshiping God. There's almost always a physical response, something, shouting, clapping, raising of hands, falling on your face. 
It doesn't look like what it looks like to us most of the time. It just doesn't scripturally. I'm just sorry to tell you that. That's not what scripture says worship is. Now, some of you are going to come at me and say, worship is from the heart. Amen. It is. It is. I, I agree. I'm not saying that what's coming out of your heart. I'm not saying if all this is happening out here. If that's not happening in here, you're right. It's a show and it's a sham and it's horrible. It's terrible. But what I'm saying is when God's working in here, when he's really working in here, when he's showing up in your life, when you're stepping out of your comfort zone and doing things and God is showing up in ways that he's never shown up for you before because you're finally taking a step of faith and you're finally allowing his El Shaddai, his mighty power to show up in your life, when that's finally happening, I'm telling you, it's going to manifest itself in your body. It's physically going to do something to you. That's what his word says. Bow down to the Lord. Don't use reverence as an excuse to not worship. The psalmist says, worship the Lord. Shacha, bow down before what? What does it say to bow down before? Here. His holiness. Why would we tremble? Because his holiness would be manifest. And it is something to behold. It is more than we can handle. It is more than we can take. We fall flat on our face in the presence of his holiness. We would tremble. The whole earth will tremble in fear of him. But what does he say every time that we do that? Do not fear. Do not fear. What a God. What a God. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, transferring this from Yahweh onto Christ because they are the same. He humbled himself, talking about Jesus, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God is highly exalted, highly lifted up, highly praised. Put him on a pedestal as high as you can put him. Highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Shaha, worship, fall down before the Lord. Let there be a physical bodily response to the greatness of God. Because I'm here to tell you, everything and everyone is going to do it someday. It's going to happen. You may stand there today and, not this, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I don't care what he says. I'm not doing it. That's fine. You won't have a choice one day. You will fall down. Okay. Sorry. Verse 10. Say among the nations. Say among the nations. Say among the nations. Declare, tell, announce, evangelize. Say among the nations. What are we to say? Quickly and we'll finish up. That the Lord reigns. Say that God is in control. The world's firmly established. It cannot be shaken. God is in control of the ultimate, ultimate outcomes of reality. What he has set in motion from eternity past will come to be. It cannot change. It will not change. It cannot be shaken. Take refuge and comfort in that truth and share that truth. God reigns. He is in control. He is sovereign. Tell what? Say what? Say among the nations that he judges the peoples fairly. On top of what the psalmist just said, he adds that he judges the people fairly. So contrast that with the psalm that we're headed into next week. Psalm 46, 6. The nations rage. Kingdoms topple. The earth melts 
when he lifts his voice. Contrast those two things. This here in Psalm 96 is speaking of perfect government. Perfect kingdom ruling as opposed to the way man rules and reigns. And how man's kingdoms topple. Their governments fail for corruption. And they fail for greed. Sound familiar? It should. Praise God. He will soon reign with a perfect government. A perfect kingdom. A perfect new heaven. New heaven and a perfect new earth. He judges the peoples fairly. Say among the peoples, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Here's the thing. Righteousness and truth and the rule of justice, God and his ways are not the enemy of joy. They're not. On the contrary, he is the true source of joy, real joy. So be glad and rejoice. And why? The psalmist tells us here why. What's the last thing highlighted right there? He's coming. Why should, why should we rejoice? Why should we proclaim? Why should we tell? Because he's coming. Now, obviously, the psalmist here is talking about the advent of the Messiah, the initial coming of Christ, right? What we celebrate is Christmas. We live at a time when that has already happened, and we should be joyful for that. We should praise the Lord that we live at a time that we know who the Messiah is. We know who the Son of God is. We know his plan of salvation. We know it. We don't have to wonder when it's going to happen. It has happened. But we should also be joyful because he's coming back. We do look forward to that. We look back and are thankful that he has come, but we look forward and are thankful and joyful that he is to come. And why? Why is he coming? Among many reasons, why is he coming? This psalm tells us here, why is he coming and why should we be joyful? Because he's coming to judge the earth. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. Thank him for that, that he's judging us to his faithfulness. He's coming back, and he's coming back to put an end to evil once and for all. Once and for all. And we should be thankful for that. Satan does not win. Not only does Satan not win, he will have a glorious tail whipping when it comes to the end. And that's something to be joyful for. I don't know if Satan's ever caused any harm in your life, but he certainly has in mine. And I can't wait for God to give him the old heave-ho and kick him out of here. So what are we saying? Finish it up with this. This psalm is about declaring God's greatness, announcing his wonderful, mighty power, that he has brought a Savior to this world, that he has taken your punishment for sin because he loves you so much and wants you back for him, and that we should declare his greatness for that. We should declare his mighty works. We should declare his character that is never changing and never going to change. And thank God it's not going to change because it doesn't need to change because it's perfect in all the ways that it is. We should be declaring that. What am I saying? I'm saying there is no sideline for Jesus followers. There is no sideline for Jesus followers. It doesn't exist. You're either in the game following him and fighting with him and for him or you're not in the game one of the two there's no sideline for jesus followers live for him talk about him declare his greatness do something so you have something to talk about would be a good step ascribe to the lord his glory and his strength here's the thing and i used to use this as an excuse for myself so i'm talking to myself when i say this and it probably hits some of you too 
you may not have the gift of evangelism, but you have the ability to evangelize. You can announce the good news of Christ without having the gift of the spirit of evangelism. No excuse. We're all called to declare his glory, to announce his goodness to the world. We must, we must, and we must. I'll pray for us and we'll finish in song. Lord God, thank you that you are great and you are mighty. God, thank you that you gave us this wonderful book of Psalms to remind us of how glorious you are, how wonderful you are, how powerful you are. God, put, put it on our hearts daily to not ascribe and give glory to the things of this earth over your glory, that we should often and often and more often speak of how wonderful you are to ourselves, to you, to each other, and to the world all the time, God, because you are worthy of that glory. You are more glorious than anything this world has to offer, and you have proved it time and time and time again, and you will continue to prove it for the rest of eternity. Lord, help us ascribe to you the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.